Alicia Shafak, wonderful to see you again. And you are one of my favourite people in the world to talk to. And I really mean that. Well, I so appreciate, you know, and thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm, I'm very happy that we're having this conversation together. Really looking forward. So I should say, obviously, that you're an award-winning author. You've been translated into, I mean, what is it, 55 languages now? How many languages? Yeah, yeah. It's been, yeah, 57 now, yeah. 57, which is just an extraordinary thing. You're famous for books such as The Bastard of Istanbul, The Island of Missing Trees recently, Three Daughters of Eve, The Architect's Apprentice. My first question really is, I think you're coming to the end now of writing another novel. Give us a sense, if you're, if you're allowed to, without giving too much away, of course, and the, the big launch will be next year, but can you give us a sense of a theme or some of the themes in this work? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I, I'm just actually this month I finished the new novel. So in a way, I'm only now surfacing uh, after a very, very long and painful process. And the reason why I feel the need to share this is because sometimes people think uh, that as you get older, it becomes easier to write books. But actually, I think it's quite the opposite. You know, it's always hard work, but I think it gets harder and harder. Um, and as a novelist, you do go through valleys of doubt, mountains of anxiety. Some weeks you feel like, OK, I got this, you know, the story is working very well. But then the next week it's just everything collapses in your hands and then you have to rebuild it. And I think all of that is part of the, the process um, that's that's the one thing I learned. So doubt is part of it. Anxiety is part of it. Fear is part of it. But all I can tell you is underneath of it all, uh, there's an there's an immense love uh, for the for the art of storytelling. The the new novel took me to places that I would not have dared to go in my imagination. Probably, uh, I follow the um, the journey of a single drop of water. Uh, and it does take me to different geographical locations and, and periods in history. But basically, it, this is the story of three fictional characters that seem to be very different at first glance. So three fictional characters, two rivers and one ancient poem. And everything is interlinked. And the novel is called There Are Rivers in the Sky. For those who are new to your work or who, who mm. don't yet, haven't yet read you, clearly your works are, are varied between each other. But how, how would you describe yourself as an author? And what is the role for, for mysticism? What is the role for reality? How important is the storytelling part mm. of it? How important is the, are the characters and the dialogue? Looking back at these works now, mm-hmm. how do you describe yourself to, to someone coming new to your work? You know, I think I would primarily um, describe myself as a storyteller. I love this ancient, universal art of storytelling. The format might change, you know, from um, from cuneiform tablets to, to, to printed books, to e-books and, and, and further technology. But I think our need for stories is universal. Uh, and it's very, very basic, you know, it's inside us. Uh, and I love that, maybe because of my upbringing, because I, uh, I was born in France, but raised in Turkey. Uh, I was raised by actually a very traditional grandmother who was a bit of an oral storyteller herself. 
I was introduced to different cultures throughout my life, and I cherish that and I treasure that. Uh, I would love my writing uh, to the best of my ability to bridge the written culture with oral culture. I've never looked down upon that world. Um, so, of course, I'm interested in reality. Of course, I'm interested in what's going on in the world. But I also love imagination and the magic of life. And the beauty of the novel as a genre is that because the canvas is so broad and freedom is full of freedom, you know, you, you can do so many things with, with a novel. If I, can, if I may very quickly add this, sometimes readers, and it's usually male readers who do this, they say, you know, so much is happening in the world today. So I read politics, technology, finance, but I don't have time for fiction. My wife reads fiction. And when I hear this, I feel very, very sad because I think inside fiction, there's everything that is part of life from psychology to history to philosophy. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, there's emotional intelligence inside novels. I don't know a single soul in this world who does not need to connect with their emotions. So fiction, there are things that fiction does very differently and it does connect the heart and the mind. And I think we need this, especially in our troubled times. We need it more than be ever before. Alif, as someone who has come to this country, come to Britain, you're British now, but how do you look at the culture of books in our society, the culture of reading, the culture of storytelling, the bond, the relationship between writers, authors such as yourself and readers also such as yourself and, and such as me and, and others? Do you think this is in a healthy place? I have come to the UK um, about 14 years ago now. Uh, I used to commute a lot between London and Istanbul um, early on, but more and more London became my home. And, and I found as a writer the freedom to write here, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of imagination, all of which is very, very dear to me. On the other hand, I've also observed lots of things changing in this country, you know, before Brexit, throughout the Brexit debate and afterwards, uh, and 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 I don't think, unfortunately, there's enough support for libraries, for cultural spaces, for literary festivals. I'm afraid it's quite the opposite. You know, whenever there is um, a political crisis or a financial turbulence, the arts are regarded as something that can be discarded. You know, as a as a luxury that can be dispensed with, which is a huge, huge mistake. It pains me to see that there isn't enough support for the arts. It pains me to see that, especially post-Brexit world, it has become actually all the more difficult for people in, in, in the creative world, for people in the creative world, but for everyone, actually. I think this is very important. If you happen to be a child from from a disadvantaged background, sometimes music is the only way, you know, or, 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 or visual arts, or dance, or sports. These are the only bridges that allow someone to transcend the limits that the society have put in front of them, you know, to, to transcend those obstacles that are not of their own making at all. So when we don't invest in cultural spaces, in, in culture and arts in general, it has major, major consequences for a society. Uh, and, and it worries me to see that in the post-Brexit world, arts and creativity uh, are, are not supported at all. 
on the face of it, as someone who is involved very heavily in the literary festival scene in this country, I love being part of that. I love interviewing authors around the land. And I've interviewed you yourself at some of these things. It feels like that's a, a vibrant, exciting place. I mean, many of those who come to literary festivals are, are older, nothing wrong with that, but it would be lovely to involve younger people as well. So I, I, I don't despair about the literary scene. I don't despair about the festival scene. Mm-hmm. Are, are you really that concerned about it? I think literary festivals um, are among our last remaining democratic spaces, you know. Um, I, I do not take them for granted. Uh, and I treasure the fact that they are open, inclusive, diverse, in our daily lives, especially the age we're living in, which is the age of anxiety, which is the age of misinformation, normally we're constantly rushing from one place to another. Uh, I think we're living in a world which is bombarded by information. So there's a lot of information. And the truth is, it's more than we can process. Uh, too much information, but very little knowledge and even less wisdom. They're completely different things, information, knowledge, and wisdom. How can we change this ratio? Let's deal with less information, uh, but let's invest more in knowledge because knowledge cannot be rushed. You need to slow down to process knowledge. So for that, we need slow journalism, in-depth analysis. We need books. We need festivals. And ideally, hopefully, we need more wisdom, which also requires empathy and emotional intelligence and the heart to also be involved in these debates. What I'm trying to say is in literary festivals, you slow down and you hear people who do not necessarily agree with you or think it the same way. I mean, you are so, so great, great at this. Matt, I've listened to your interviews. We've done events together. Um, and to be able to speak at length on so many issues calmly, you know, I, I think that that is a treasure. And these are the things that we take for granted, but actually they are the pillars of a functioning democracy. When those spaces are taken away, the, a, a society becomes more easily polarized and divided. It is not a coincidence that many autocrats across the world, they love to divide society. So we need to be careful about, you know, those extreme polarizations. And I think culture in its own gentle way often serves as the cement, the glue that holds a society together. Otherwise, we all become atomized individuals. And that's not a healthy thing for for a democracy. And literary festivals also offer authors such as yourself a chance to meet, to engage with your audiences. And I imagine that's a very special part of the sort of world of being an author. It can be such a solitary thing, doing the writing. It can be so tough, as you described it earlier. And then once you have this wonderful book in your hands, you take it to your readers, literally around the country, and you engage with them about some of the thoughts, the ideas, the themes that emerge. And I think that's a very special thing. It is a very special thing. And I think many authors feel this deep inside, you know. Um, We've all gone through COVID times and we missed those encounters. We missed literary festivals. Many of us have done Zoom events maybe, but it wasn't exactly the same thing. Although uh, I also cherish online events because you can connect with people from all backgrounds, people who can't, uh, perhaps for many reasons, can't travel. So there's a part of me that appreciates that. But in addition, I long for 
those you know physical um encounters where people can get together look into each other's eyes listen and and as i said slow down no no need to rush you know um so th- th- that is very special what i have experienced over the years is you know when i talked with the people waiting in a book signing queue they're, they're, it's not a, some stupid signature that people are after they're there they're waiting because they want to tell you something right they want to tell you what uh, that book what that novel meant to them how it touched them and that is a huge blessing that's a big gift for authors as you mentioned especially for novelists we are very solitary creatures we live inside our imagination uh, in every other sphere of arts you collaborate with so many people but for novelists at least while you're writing you are on your own and you don't know whether the story you're working on is going to mean anything to anyone at all uh, and so when you receive a letter when someone comes and shares their words with you and when when these people come from all kinds of backgrounds uh, i i really really see that um as as a gift and this question of meaning and interpretation and the way that a novel is received how important is it for you as an author to leave space in your writing so that there can be different interpretations so that your readers can come and talk to you in your in the queues for your for your signature and tell you different stories of what they have got from your writing perhaps stories that you weren't even aware of mm-hmm. as the teller of the original story in other words that you're not spoon feeding your readership but you're allowing their own imaginations our own ima- imaginations to do some of the work or have some of the fun or do some of the exploring ourselves indeed and that 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 is so important i don't like it when when writers try to teach or preach you know i don't know the answers myself uh, i i am learning and i think that emphasis on learning is so important i believe novelists need to be two things we need to be two things all our lives one we need to be good readers you know keep reading from uh, across the board fiction and non-fiction also secondly we need to be good listeners we need to listen to people and learn from everyone so in a nutshell i think we have to be students of life and never graduate you know always always be students um for me there's a there's an important distinction there uh, i don't think a novelist especially in this age can be apolitical non-political you know i am a feminist i am i've learned lots of great things from feminist movements of past generations and of course one of the crucial things is the personal is also political so if you describe politics in that broad sense it's politics is not only what boris johnson said yesterday at the covid inquiry or what you know this party or that party might have done today it's broader than that wherever there's power wherever there's inequality imbalance every aspect of daily life is actually shaped by politics so you might be writing about sexuality that could also be a very political novel but that said i think a writer should never never try to you know preach or or give the answers but what matters for me is to be able to ask questions including difficult questions about difficult issues and then open up a space um of diversity of freedom where a variety of opinions can be heard and then leave the answers to the reader 
because each and every reader is going to come up with their own answers. And I have to respect that. That said, do you also feel some sort of responsibility as a voice for the voiceless? This this is a question that's very, very close to my heart. And I think actually my, my answer is going to be perhaps not rational, but emotional in the sense that almost naturally, organically, I veer in that towards that direction, you know, but it's not something that I think about. I, I, I sincerely believe this is one of the things that literature does in a very organic way. It brings the periphery to the center and it does make the invisible a bit more visible, the unheard a, a bit better heard, you know, and in that regard, literature can give a voice to people who feel voiceless or people who feel like their stories have been forgotten or forsaken. Now, the reason why I passionately believe in this is also because maybe I come from Turkey. Uh, as you know, Turkey has a very rich history, um, but that doesn't translate into a strong memory. Just the opposite. I think we are a society of collective amnesia in Turkey. So there's one official narrative, one official version of history that's imposed from above. And in that narrative, there are almost no individuals. There's only a Sultan, Sheikhul Islam, you know, a few powerful men, and that's about it. But when you ask seemingly small questions, how would I feel? You know, you're, to you're telling me the story of the great Ottoman Empire. Okay, how would I feel if I had been a Jewish miller um, in that era, let's say 17th century, 18th century Ottoman Empire? How would my life be like? How would I feel if I were an Armenian silversmith, a Kurdish peasant? Or how would my life be like if I were a woman in that era, a concubine perhaps, you know, in the harem? What would my life be like? And then when you ask these questions, you start seeing the levels and layers of inequality. So I think uh, literature does this. Literature asks questions and it's very important to be able to ask those questions freely so that we can understand actually the official narrative is, um, is one-sided and always imposed from above. And indeed, you got into trouble in the writing of The Bastard of Istanbul because mm -hmm. you, one of your fictional characters spoke of the Armenian genocide mm -hmm. and you were actually put on trial yourself in Istanbul mm -hmm. and there was, you, you were sort of having to mount a defence for a fictional character. Could you just remind us of that, tell those who don't know that extraordinary story just briefly, and what on earth that was like to find yourself on the wrong side of the state. How scary was that? One of my earlier novels, the, the Bastard of Istanbul, tells the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian-American family. And the whole story is mostly told through the eyes of generations of women. So grandmothers, mothers, granddaughters. And it does talk openly and critically about the Armenian genocide which unfortunately is the biggest taboo in Turkey still to this day. And in the Turkish constitution, there's an article 301, which protects Turkishness against insults, even though nobody knows what that means, you know, and therefore it's quite open to all kinds of interpretation, misinterpretation. This article had been used earlier against historians uh, to prevent them from speaking out or against journalists, but it had never been used against the work of fiction. 
And so suddenly I found myself in a very surreal situation in which the words of my fictional characters, usually Armenian fictional characters, were plucked, almost taken out of the text and used as evidence in the courtroom. As a result of which, my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters. And that madness went on for about a year during which time there were groups on the streets, nationalists, ultranationalists, spitting at my pictures, burning EU flags, because in their eyes I was a pawn of you know, EU and all kinds of uh, horrible accusations. Uh, and it was scary, it was unsettling, you know? Uh, it was also surreal. At the end of that period, I was acquitted alongside the fictional characters. I wouldn't be telling you the truth if I told you that I wasn't affected at all. I found it unsettling the whole year, also because I was pregnant at the time. And the day after I was acquitted, actually, I gave birth uh, to our first child. So it had been a, it has been a, you know, unsettling year um, because of the political pressure. Fast forward, I wish I could tell you that since then, Turkey has made huge progress in terms of freedom of speech. I'm afraid it's quite the opposite. Um, just one small example from my personal life. Uh, one of my other novels, actually two of them, have also been, are still actually being investigated by a prosecutor. This time the charge is obscenity because I write about gender violence um, and issues like child abuse, um, femicides uh, and child marriages, which, which is a, unfortunately a huge problem in Turkey. So the irony is, rather than doing something about these problems, rather than opening shelters for women and children experiencing abuse, change, rather than changing the laws, the fact that the government goes after fiction writers and tries to punish them for writing about these subjects is, to my mind, unbelievable. Again, asking you as someone who has come to this country and is now one of us, but also bringing an interesting and unique perspective as a, an individual, but also as someone who comes from a different culture. Do you witness our struggles, even in a democracy, of trying to come to terms with our history? Mm -hmm. The idea that the British Empire was an invasive force that took over other people's territories by force mm -hmm. is something that many British people find very difficult to to get their heads around and I'm and, and we have and, and that's part of the culture wars trying to work out how we look at our history how we should think of our history does that interest you as, as someone who has struggled in Turkey and in, in the ways that you've just, just described that interests me deeply profoundly um, and of course, I, I can't help sometimes compare and contrast and, and see similarities as well. Um, perhaps this will be clearer if I tell you that in Turkey, we always believed that we were a mighty empire and wherever we went, we brought justice and civilization and, and the, the best technology of the day, right? But this seemingly small exercise of empathy, we're almost incapable of doing in Turkey. <clears throat> and that exercises, again... Uh, how would I feel if I were, for instance, a Greek peasant about, you know, the Ottoman Empire or the administration? Just the moment you ask this question, yeah, just switch, you know, the angle, you realize um, we occupied, you know, the territory. So 
changing the narrative, changing the perspective is an important exercise for the mind, for the heart. Uh, of course, in, in Britain, I think um, the biggest difference is you can walk into a bookstore and you can come across, you can find books that question the official narrative. And the authors of those books are not put into jail or prosecuted. And that's good, of course. But still, many people uh, find it difficult to, to, to ask critical-minded questions about history. And unfortunately, because of the age of populism that we're all catapulted into, we are made to think that you either love your country or you criticize everything and there's no other way of existence. That is an artificial duality. Let us never accept that duality. And I know, Matt, this also means a lot to you. I follow your journalism. I follow, you know, your uh, incredibly important emphasis on diversity, creating an inclusive society. You know, you have grandparents um, who came from, you know, um, Jewish backgrounds, Scottish backgrounds. Correct me if I'm wrong. English, really, more on my mum's side, but a little bit of Scots in there as well. Yeah. But Scots, but Scots and English. And so that whole mixture, that whole diversity, is, is we both cherish that. But my point is, you can love your country, you can love your ancestors' stories, heritage, and you can still be critical of so many things that happened in history. So it's that fake duality that I want to question. You can be critical of the injustices of history, but at the same time appreciate some of the beautiful sides of history. I, I feel the need to simplify this, but we always need to emphasize this, that there's a third approach, there's a fifth approach. There are other ways of approaching the past and the present. Um, let us never agree to being pushed into these artificial polarizations, which only serves into the hands of populist demagoguery. How do you see your own identity? I like, I think a lot about identity, but I don't want to perceive it as something that's static or solid or frozen in time. So rather than solid identities, I think I'm much more interested in multiple belongings. There are um, philosophers throughout time, going all the way back to ancient Greece, who spoke about actually um, identity almost like in concentric circles, you know, like ripples in water. And I love that metaphor. So for me, maybe, you know, can I think of my own belongings in the same way? So when I look at myself, for instance, of course, I'm Turkish, and this is a big part of who I am and my writing but I also feel attached to the Balkans, you know, when I look at my own family stories. Uh, I do feel attached to the Middle East. Um, and, and I will always carry in my soul so many elements from the Middle East. I do at the same time consider myself European. You know, the values that I share, that I care about. I have become a British citizen over the years. And despite what politicians have been telling us in this country, I want to keep calling myself a citizen of the world, you know, a citizen of humankind. That doesn't mean that you're just floating in the air without a care, just the opposite. It means like you care about many things at the same time. But I think this kind of multiplicity is important for everyone. You know, it doesn't matter whether you were brought up um, across several cultures or you stayed in the same town all your life. Every human being is complicated. It could be one's sexual identity, it could be one's 
um, cultural, artistic productivity, everything is another layer added into that complexity. Uh, and I think that's what storytellers try to uh, emphasize, how complicated we are as human beings. So all I'm trying to say is the way we're being simplified into one single thread of identity and pushed into different corners, into different tribes, and asked to stay in those boxes once and for all is not close to my heart at all. I did a TV show the other day, and I was on with a conservative politician whose show it was, and I realised afterwards when I watched some of it back that I had literally been described as left in the corner because I was supposed to be on the left, and there was a sign saying left in the corner is in a pub. So I was sort of in my little box. I gave a good account of myself, I hope. Elif, I'm curious to know about this role of mysticism, or spirituality, perhaps even magic, a sense of the other, religion perhaps, in a world in which we are bombarded, as you say, by information. We, we are doing this interview over Zoom. Technology has some huge advantages. There is so much technology around us. We live in what feels like such a modern world in many ways. Where is the space for this sense of the other, whatever one calls it, whatever shape that other manifests itself. But there's certainly something of that in your writing. Where's the space for that today? You know, I, I really find your question so important, but I want to start thinking about this question maybe from a slightly different point of view. What I struggle with is certainty, clashing certainties and the arrogance of certainty. I just don't like it, you know? Um, I think this question about this question all the time, when was the last time any of us said, I don't know about anything? You can ask me a question about anything and everything. If I don't know the answer, I will Google it fast. And in the next five minutes, probably I'll be able to say a few things about that subject, giving me the illusion that I know something about the subject, but actually I know nothing about it. Uh, whereas when I'm able to say, I don't know, um, it grounds me, you know, and I realize I am yet to learn. I'm still learning. There's a process. So all I'm trying to say is this clashing certainties, which is unfortunately the age uh, we're living in, is, is not conducive to intellectual exchange or spiritual growth. I do make a distinction between spirituality and religiosity. I do not like at all the way organized religions divide humanity into us versus them, and think that, uh, assume that us is somehow closer to God or superior than them, or, or closer to truth, whatever. Um, so rather than perhaps, I'm not a religious person myself, you know, at all. But what I'm interested in is personal spiritual journeys. And that's a very unique journey. That journey might take you towards completely different directions. And who am I to judge, you know? That's your journey. It's unique like our fingerprints. So rather than the certainty of atheism or rather than the certainty of uh, religiosity, I think what I find closer to my heart is agnosticism or um, those mystics throughout history who are a bit like a, a bit of misfits. They were walking a very thin line between faith and doubt. I love it when faith and doubt talk to each other. The problem with very religious people is that they want to get rid of doubt. And the problem with very um, ultra atheist people is that they want to get rid of faith. But faith can be a very secular thing. You know, when you move to a different country without knowing whether you're going to be happy there, it's an act of faith. Uh, 
when you start writing a book, it's an act of faith. You know, there are secular ways of reading faith as well. But the most important thing is that I think faith and doubt should continue to dance, challenge each other, um, talk to each other. And we should never stop saying, I don't know. One advantage of technology, just to come back to technology for a moment, is that it enables you to communicate with your readership and to spread your messages or your questions. And I noticed, for example, that you use Instagram emotionally and very personally at, at times, really speaking almost intimately with the people who engage with you or follow you. There are some advantages, aren't there, in modern tech? I mean, obviously, there are some obvious and enormous world-changing advantages in technology. But I'm thinking perhaps particularly of social media here, it can be a very divisive, destructive force, but it can also be a space where people can come, I'm using that word again, space, but it can be a, a space where people can come together. Mm, that is true. Um, but unfortunately, I think social media is a bit like the moon. It does have a bright side, but it also has a very dark side that was invisible for many people for a long time. You will remember early 2000s, there was so much optimism about how social media was going to bring democracy. We cannot be that naive. So we need to be careful and especially for women there are studies that show you know the amount of abuse that women are receiving or minorities are receiving or critical minded people are receiving on social media is just escalating uh, however we cannot leave this platform to only tech minded people whatever that means we need to be part of this conversation as global citizens let's create our own calmer spaces and let's connect i think i find connections important I am on Instagram. I've completely abandoned Twitter. I'm sorry, I still call, call it Twitter. Um, I am now starting Substack. I like it because, you know, it's based on words. You can write longer pieces, newsletters. So we're all trying to create more calmer and inclusive spaces. And I think especially in countries where there isn't a free media, social media still matters a lot. I cannot disregard that. But of course, like you, I worry a lot about how to make it a much more constructive and inclusive space where there's no hate speech. You spoke earlier about the medium through which we read books or hear stories. There's the spoken word, of course, those, tra those oral traditions. There are books, as we know them, and there are e-books. Is there something more spiritual, psychologically nourishing, emotional? I'm not quite sure what the right word or words are about reading a paper book, turning the leaves of a book, turning the pages. Is there something more rewarding about that, more fulfilling than reading on an ebook? Or as a consumer of stories yourself, does it not matter what the vehicle is? For me personally, holding a book in my hands, walking with a book, sitting under a tree with a book, I cherish these. But I am also aware that had I been younger, you know, uh, had I been perhaps um, doing office work, I wouldn't probably have the time or the habit, the daily habit, which is which is okay. So I don't want to judge, but let's please make reading a constant part of our daily existence. So if paper books do not work for you, let's go towards ebooks or audiobooks. Audiobooks can be both incredibly helpful, but tricky in the sense that sometimes you lose your you know concentration, your attention. As long as we're careful with that, I really do not mind the format. Uh, I can never judge 
but let's please make books an essential part of our lives. I'm not an expert in education. I'm not a teacher, but I vividly hold inside myself, I think, the upbringing I had in which my mother really encouraged me to read. And I was a slow reader because I partly I think because I wanted to take things in. I took time over the words, but I really gained something. It gave me a massive underpinning. Now, as you say, the world moves so quickly and it's so easy to neglect that core activity of reading. But for me as a child, it nourished me and it gave me a sort of springboard from which to launch myself into the world. Does that resonate with you? That resonates with me a lot. Um, And, uh, you know, as we spoke about earlier, I think it does nourish particularly emotional intelligence. You know, empathy is a muscle at the end of the day. The more you use it, the the better you become at it. And, And books help us to, you know, they gently pull us out of our own cocoon. Um, and and help us to see the world through someone else's eyes. That's incredibly humbling for the mind, for the soul, but it also gives us a completely new perspective. There are many, many studies that show how the mind is nourished by reading, especially uh, by having eclectic reading lists. So not only reading the same genre, the same type of writing over and over, but daring to travel a little bit. I've never believed in that distinction between highbrow literature and and you know and and the opposite. Who who even decides um, those dualities? Anything and everything that speaks to us in that moment in time, that's the right book for us. So let's read philosophy. Let's read graphic novels. Let's read cookbooks. Let's read poetry. Let's definitely read fiction, and and be intellectual nomads. I think that's the best for our minds. And how crucial is reading, We talk, you talked earlier about listening, I think, but how important is reading to you as an author? I think it's a huge, huge part of m- m- my life, my existence, you know. I-, I cannot claim that every day I write because, you know, some days you're less productive, some days you're more productive, or sometimes the things you write, they don't necessarily go anywhere and you just, just put it aside. But I can claim that every day I read. You know, so um, if I can't read during the day, I read at night. And again, if I may quickly add this, sometimes you will come across authors who are very proud of their precise schedules. They say, I wake up at seven o'clock, I write for three hours, then I go out for a run, and then I come back, lunch, and I write again for three hours. Usually, people who say these things are male authors of a certain age and background. Everyone else who doesn't fit into this category, what happens is we're juggling you know, multiple tasks. We're trying to carve out a space, a time for ourselves. And that's okay. That's fine. That's human. But let's make reading an essential part of our daily schedules. Doesn't matter whether you read in the morning, at night, or, you know, but let's let it be an integral part of our lives. Something I was very surprised to learn from you about the way that you actually work yourself is that you can listen with headphones to very intense music perhaps in a cafe as you write tell us about that briefly and and what what sort of music you listen to and whether that's changed over the years well I I don't like silence and actually I panic when there's too much silence around me I like noise I like sounds maybe it's the impact of Istanbul because Istanbul is such a noisy city especially the part of Istanbul where I lived and I love music but the kind of music that has high energy and fire in it so I put on my headphones because otherwise my children would complain. 
and I love listening to genres, subgenres of heavy metal, which hasn't changed at all since my early youth. Um, although I moved from one subgenre to another, but basically I love listening to progressive or or um, industrial metal, Viking. I love Scandinavian Viking, Nordic heavy metal, um, metalcore, uh, a bit of melodic death metal. I just love that genre and its contrasts and its fire. Um, it, it helps me to concentrate better. Do you think in Turkish or English or maybe even French? I do think think in English. Um, if I'm writing in English, I try to stay in that zone. I never translate in my head. And I'm endlessly interested in how people switch. Um, it's emotions that guide us, don't they? Sometimes when people are angrier, they move, switch from one language to another, um, which is something I do as well in my daily life. I think my connection with the Turkish language is very emotional. My connection with the English language is more cerebral. But when I look at my writing still to this day, if, if, if my writing has more melancholy and longing and sorrow in it, I find these things still easier to express in Turkish. But when it comes to humor, which I love, I think humor is our oxygen. So humor, irony and satire, I find them much, much easier in English. How do you write about longing and about sorrow when you're listening to heavy metal, Belief? <laughs> Um, I mean, heavy metal in itself is is so, it can be so nuanced, it can be so layered, especially the, the kind of heavy metal that I listen, the more gothic, melodic type. It does have contrasts, you know, perhaps anger but or, or, or strong emotions, but also a gentleness, uh, almost a velvety, you know, um, texture. And, and it's the way they're all jacked juxtaposed you know brought together that mesmerizes me so it works for me I, I I've always felt re-energized when I listen to this kind of music as you have been translated into 57 languages has that tempted you to learn more languages and how many languages do you now speak I, I wish you know I, sometimes you, you receive a book in Japanese in Norwegian in Italian and and I wish I could read read in in in, in those beautiful languages but I can't of course uh, I ha because I spent my part of my childhood in Spain at the time Spanish was my second language and English became my third but English never abandoned me uh, and I love the Spanish language as well um, I'm endlessly curious about those words that can't be easily translated from one language to another I pay attention to untranslatable words because I think they say a lot about the cultures where they come from. French? No, my French is very, very basic because I was very young when I when I left France, but I would love to improve my French, yes. Finally, just explain to us what life is like. I mean, it's shifting and changing all the time, of course, but what is life like for Leif Shafak? You're a mother, mm -hmm. you're a wife, mm -hmm. you are an author, a storyteller, we haven't really touched much on, on your commentary, on your sort of explicit political commentary, if I can put it like that. You say you don't want to push messages mm -hmm. in, in your writing, you don't want to teach, you don't want to be didactic, but you you have a voice outside of your writing and, and you talk about political issues. What is life like for you? You know, I think if you come from a wounded democracy like, like Turkey, you learn um, right away that if you happen to be a novelist, you cannot 
be silent about core issues like human rights violations, women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, or democracy, you know? These core values are in incredibly important. Uh, I think we need to speak up. Uh, and I would love women and minorities to be more visible in the public space as well as in the digital space. Now that said, every day we are learning new things, right? Every day is a is a challenge. One of the un unfortunately traps of social media is that we're constantly bombarded by the image of perfect life, constant happiness, being always successful. All of these are myths. Um, it's not a reality, you know. Some days you feel successful, other days you fall down. It's such so sad that because of populist demagogues, for instance, the world the, the word loser is thrown around. Like if you're doubting yourself, oh, you must be a loser. Not at all. Um, there was a time when philosophers talked about how important it was, you know, self doubt. Oh, in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is this is the age of anxiety. This is the age of existential angst. Some days we find it difficult to even get out of bed. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed, you know, with anger, frustration, disappointment, or just fatigue, almost an existential fatigue. All of that is human. The crucial question is, what do we do with these feelings? Can we turn them into something more constructive, both for ourselves or, and for our communities? So let's not underestimate emotions. Let's see them as sources of energy. And, and and let's have these conversations candidly so that nobody feels left out, left behind or alone. What a brilliant way to end, Alif. Such a pleasure to talk to you. It really, really is. It, 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 I find it nourishing as an interviewer and as a person. So thank you for answering my 20 questions. Oh, it's been such a, such a pleasure and privilege. Thank you so much for having me.